Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, everyone. I only have one quick announcement for you as you are finding your seats. I do have one, though. Can you turn me up, Emily? (laughs) I have one announcement for you. We will be meeting next week, but then we are taking the week of spring break off, so we will not be meeting on March 16th. I want to make sure everybody knows that. So we will have a really good break point because we get to end with Romans 8 next week, which is glorious, and then we get a week off, and then we come back to something hard in Romans 9. But I want you guys to be ready. <laughs> okay, I, I'm sure that your discussions were just as lively as ours was today. This was a hard text, wasn't it? And uh, I want us to start today uh, just by claiming the victory that we have over sin. Paul assures us that that this battle has been won, that Jesus, Jesus has paid the penalty for sin once and for all, and he has declared that we are right with him. So this battle is won. We're going to talk a lot about sin here tonight, today, <laughs> but I want us to claim victory together. So let's stand. We're going um, to read our memory verse together, and then we're going to sing a song that's all about the victory that we have in Christ. So let's read Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's sing. I'm fighting a battle. Yeah. You've already won. No
He'll fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll say that it is well. Can I get an amen on that one? All right, you guys can have a seat. I'm going to go ahead and invite Shelly up. We are so blessed today to have my good friend Shelly Wood um, speaking to us, and I know you're going to be blessed. Um, I don't know if she knew what she was getting into with this chapter. She did not. <laughs> um, so we want to pray for Shelly, and then she'll further introduce herself. 
Um, so join me in prayer. God, we are so thankful that we can claim this victory that you've already won. Nothing can come our way that you have not already overcome. So thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We celebrate you together. And now, God, as we have to think about these, this hard battle that we're still fighting, God, would you help us to listen to what you have to say to us through Shelly? Would you help her? Would you give her just the courage to share what you've put on her heart to share? And God, we just expect to hear from you. Thank you in advance for what you will teach us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, good morning. <laughs> I, I want to confess to you how I ended up standing here to talk about chapter seven. <clears throat> we were, um, when we were invited to be a part of the teaching team, Amy is so gracious and she lets us choose the chapters that we want to teach first and then she takes what's left. So most of the time that ends up being the more difficult ones. And I, all of the ones in Romans are hard though. <laughs> There's not an easy one. Um, so whenever she gave us the schedule for this, I went to my calendar and thought, okay, I'm going to make sure there are no scheduling conflicts. And, um, and then I followed that by looking at all the chapter headings and all the subheadings. And I was like, okay, not that one, not that one, not that one. And um, I, she offered us to do three. She was like, you, anybody can do three if you would like. I was like, no, I'll do two. And um, anyway... So, I'll be honest, complete transparency, I chose the chapter that I thought was going to be the easiest. <laughs> and because standing up here is really scary, <laughs> if you haven't done it before, it's very scary. So having an easy text to go through, so that um, in my pride, I thought that this was going to be easy. And I was completely clueless and completely wrong. So back in October, whenever... Um, our teaching team kind of came together. I went on a, a trip, and during that trip, I took um, my little scripture journal with me, and I started kind of going through the inductive process of marking words and trying not to bring my experience to the text to, to interpret it, but to actually let the, just what does it say, and um, really looking at what was written and then comparing it to other scripture that Paul had written. And I'm not going to lie, it kind of rattled me <clears throat> when I took that approach with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I started reading commentaries, and I got rattled even more. And I don't know if any of you ventured out into commentaries, but what I thought was a firm understanding that I had um, of Romans 7 became much less firm. And all of that to say that you may have felt the same way this week as you study chapter 7, especially on the hills of chapter 6. Um, what I want you to know is that you're not alone in this. If this text is somewhat confusing to you um, in, in, in the verbiage or if it, in the placement of the flow in Romans, it, sometimes it kind of feels weird to me where it is, um, or in maybe even what Paul is trying to say to us through it. Um, I'm not a theologian, <laughs> um, and from what I've seen, theologians are pretty evenly divided on who Paul is discussing at the end of this chapter um, is it a believer or an unbeliever? But I, and I don't for a moment think that I'm going to somehow bring some amazing clarity to that discussion. And I honestly don't think that it's necessary um, because I don't think it changes the main point of Paul's writing um, and what he's trying to say to us in Romans 7. And I hope that we'll see that together this morning, what his, his real point in, in this um, scripture is. So Paul is defending the necessity of the law. 
but also trying to show us the weakness of the law to sanctify us. <clears throat> Back in chapter 6, Paul used the analogy of slavery to illustrate our relationship to sin and the law. And he asked the question, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And by now we all know how he answered, right? What did he say? By no means. In chapter 7, though, Paul uses a different illustration to answer that question, but to make basically the same point. And he begins this chapter with talk of marriage. Flip that around the right way. And who doesn't love a wedding? So this is much more pleasant imagery than slavery, isn't it? We actually celebrated our oldest son's marriage to his college sweetheart this past October. And this is a picture of us together on the happiest day of 2022. So family and friends gathered to witness Mark Douglas and Rachel exchange vows that included the promise, till death do us part. So Mark Douglas and Rachel are now bound to each other by the law of marriage. And however, that legal relationship only lasts as long as both of them are still alive. So if one of them dies, the other is then freed from that relationship to marry someone else if they desire. So Paul applies this illustration to us and our relationship to the law. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And then verse 6 goes on to say, I'm skipping five, if you'll notice. Verse six says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It is through dying with Christ that we are released from our relationship with the law and free to marry another, Jesus Christ. Our allegiance has changed from the law to Christ. We are no longer bound to the law, but we are bound to Christ. So what does that mean? This is a relationship that changes, just like marriage, every single area of our life. We are in a personal, binding, all-encompassing, life-changing, intimate relationship that is secure and joyful. This is a relationship that begins now and extends into all eternity. So what is the purpose of this new marriage relationship to Jesus? Verse six says, it is to bear fruit for God for his kingdom, for his glory. We have moved from an old era of the law where according to verse five, we were living in the flesh and where our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We were under the law, thus under is condemnation which led to our death. We are now in a new era, the era of the spirit, where Tim Keller describes it as where we see the law as an expression of God's desires. His commandments are no longer a burden to us. We have a new motivation, which is love for our husband, Jesus. We obey in a new framework, acceptance on Christ's fulfillment of the law, not on us fulfilling the law. And we have a new power to do it, the Holy Spirit. But we're going to talk more about that next week when Courtney teaches and when you study chapter 8. But Paul has already alluded to the work of the Spirit in chapter 6 and now again in the first part of 7. And I mentioned this at my table. I love how he'll just kind of drop a little truth down in a chapter, but he doesn't elaborate on it. It's just like, well, here's a little something to think about. And then two or three chapters later, he expounds on it some. But So next week, we'll talk more about the Spirit. 
Um, honestly, it would flow nicely if we could just jump on over to chapter 8 at this point and continue talking about this spirit. But surely Paul knows that at this point his listeners might have some questions for him. He has had a lot to say about the law so far in this letter, and most of it probably sounds pretty negative to them. It might sound as if, and it may sound negative to you too, it might sound as if he is just throwing the law under the bus, saying that there is something wrong with it, or maybe wanting to just toss it out altogether. His listeners might think that he is saying that the law has no value, or even worse, that he is saying it is sin itself and that it brings death. Romans 7, 5 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. One commentator calls this the brutal bundle, law, sin, and death. Most of the rest of chapter 7 is going to elaborate on this verse. In verses 7 through 25, Paul answers those two questions that I'm sure you talked about at your table. Um, two questions about the law that he thinks his listeners and maybe you ladies of TBC are already thinking. Um, and he tells us, in answering those, he tells us much about the nature of the law and the nature of sin. The first question is, Paul, it sounds like you could be saying that the law is sin. Is it? The second question, did the law bring death to me? And Paul answers both of those, again, with an emphatic, by no means. Paul anticipates this possible distortion of his teaching um, about the law, and maybe even the rejection of the gospel message based on that distortion. So he has to defend the law in order to uphold the gospel. So let's see what Paul has to say about the, the perfect law and utterly sinful sin and how those two work together in our lives. Paul says that the law works to define sin for us. It tells us what sin is. It reveals sin in us. We've already seen this truth, like I talked about back in Romans 3.20. He kind of just dropped it in there. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now in verse 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So just like an x-ray or an MRI cannot be blamed for exposing a disease that lies within us, so the law cannot be blamed or even called sin for exposing the sin that lies within us. We can rejoice in that because without a clear recognition of sin, we would not come to faith in Christ. So the law is valuable and it's necessary to us in that sense. We need to know our sin. We should want to know our sin. But too often we ignore the sin in our lives or justify it or minimize it. John Piper says, Oh, the perils of not knowing our sin. There is a great sadness that comes from not being saddened by knowing our sin. There is a great pain that comes to the soul and to the marriage and to the family and to the church and the world from not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. There is a great self-destruction that comes um, from not experiencing the self-devastation of knowing our sin. There is an eternal loss that comes from not losing our pride in the knowledge of our sin. If there is any hope and any faith and any joy and peace and love, it will come from knowing our sin, so get to know your sin. We cannot truly know Christ and treasure him if we don't know the sin that dwells in us. The last part of verse 8 reads, apart from the law, sin is dead. It is imperceptible to us as sin. 
It is dead in our minds. It's still there, though, working against us, working death in us, but we don't perceive it until the Holy Spirit reveals sin to us through the instrument of the law and convicts us of sin. In this chapter, we also see that the law activates, it stirs up or provokes sin in us. Verse 5 says that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. And in verse 9, Paul states, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The power of the law to stir up sin and our nature to be enticed by forbidden fruit are as old as the garden. We don't want to be told what not to do or what to do. When the law says don't, we say don't tell me what to do. I'm not sure about you, but in my flesh I am willful and rebellious by nature, even against my own self. I'll declare that every Monday I'm going to do laundry and clean my refrigerator. And do you know when Monday rolls around, I want to do anything on the face of the earth except for those two things. It's kind of crazy the way it works. Um, many years ago, the Mark Douglas, the groom in the picture I showed you earlier, was about eight or nine years old, and we were visiting my parents in South Carolina. It was a cold and rainy day, and the kids and I were waiting in the van in the parking garage at a hospital where my parents were just going to run in and visit a friend who was ill. But I couldn't find a parking spot, so I just had to keep circling round and round and round, which caused us to have to repeatedly pass by this group of employees, hospital employees, who were huddled together in their coats because it was freezing and raining. They were huddled together in their coats in this one little section of this parking garage smoking. And I decided in all of my parental wisdom that I needed to give them a lesson on not smoking. <laughs> so I don't know how many times we passed by this huddled mass, um, but more than a few times I pointed out this is yet another reason to never start smoking, because I know that nobody wants to be out here in this weather, but they're compelled to do it because they're addicted to it, and they have to come and smoke. And so after a few iterations of that, <laughs> from the back of the van, in a loud voice, I hear Mark Douglas scream, Mom, stop talking about it. You're making me want to do it. <laughs> and I thought, talk about backfiring. I'm pretty sure that at that point in his life, he had never even considered smoking. <laughs> but the good lesson from my mouth I matched up with his uh, sinful nature um, actually took my good lesson and just twisted it around. <laughs> so Paul is saying much the same thing about the nature of the law, that the good law activates sin and it brings it alive. In verse 12, we see that the law is not just not sin, as Paul has already stated, but it is, in fact, holy, righteous, and good. So how can he say that after the things that he said about the law? Well, because the law reveals God's attributes, his heart, his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness. He is the lawgiver, and he is holy, righteous, and good. Therefore, his law is holy, righteous, and good as well. The law shows us that our fleshly desires are not the measure of right and wrong, of good and bad, true and false. It reveals that there is a standard outside of ourselves. That's the revealed will of God. And a life lived in conformity to God's law, if we could do it, is absolutely the best possible life. But we have all experienced the impossibility of that because of sin. The law is also spiritual, as Paul says in verse 14. It deals not just with the physical actions of man, but with the heart of man, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5. He said that murder is not just killing someone, 
but it's actually being angry enough in your heart towards someone that you want to kill them. That's murder as well. And that adultery is not just committing the act of adultery, but lusting after someone in your heart is adultery as well. This was a new teaching for the Pharisees. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, he thought he was capable, self-sufficient, in control, morally strong. He was self-congratulatory. In Philippians 3, 6, he describes himself when he was a Pharisee as blameless concerning the law. Paul thought he was spiritually alive, but in verse 9 of Romans, he says the commandment came, sin came alive, and he died. I think what Paul is describing here is a time in his life when he knew what the law said to do or not to do, but he didn't really understand the spiritual nature of the law. He only thought it concerned external actions, not his heart condition. And we see the same attitude in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, in this parable, Jesus said that there was a Pharisee and a tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prayed about how good he was. And he said, thank you, God, that I am not like these other men, these extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This man saw the law not as spiritual, something that dealt with his heart, but as merely external actions. But the tax collector, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that the tax collector was the one who went home justified, that he had allowed the law of God to illuminate the sinfulness in his heart, and then he begged God for mercy. I hope we have all experienced the coming of the commandment, as Paul put it, when the commandment comes in in a new way, pierces our heart, brings conviction and understanding. Paul was faced with the depth of his own sin because the spiritual law had revealed it to him. And then he realized that with the law as his judge, he was condemned to death. The law came, sin came alive, and he died. The final characteristic of the law we see in this scripture is that the law is weak. It is weakened by sin. It is powerless to produce in us fruit for God. It is powerless to transform us. Why? Because of sin. The law comes and it ignites the sin in us. It becomes an instrument to multiply the very sins that the law itself condemns. It is a catastrophic conspiracy. How does sin weaken the law? Sin is deceptive. We've all seen that in our own lives, right? In verse 11, Paul says that sin deceived him. There are many, many ways that sin deceives us. Sometimes it deceives us into thinking that we haven't done something wrong just because we haven't performed an actual wrong deed or action. We, in that case, we become legalistic, we become self-righteous, marking off our to-do list and ignoring the internal sin. The reverse is, is it can deceive us into thinking we are hopeless when it comes to sin and that we should give up even trying to resist sin. This leads us to spiritual depression and it can deceive us about sin itself and make us blind to its consequences. We see the devastation all around us caused by adultery, alcohol and drug abuse, greed, idolatry, the list goes on. But isn't it amazing how we can somehow be deceived into thinking that that sin won't produce the same consequences in our lives that we see in other people's lives? Sin also uses what is good, the law, for evil. 
Verse 8 and verse 11 both say that sin seized an opportunity. That's a strong word, isn't it? Through the commandment, through the law. That phrase, seized an opportunity, and then in other places it says taking occasion. It actually means to, to make a start from a place or to mark a beginning point. But even stronger um, imagery than that is it's also used in military terms. And it can mean a base of um, operations where the military would assemble and then make preparations and start out on a campaign. So when we think about sin in that way, sin weakens the power of the law because it powerfully sets up a campaign inside of us to weaken our resistance to keep the law. Although the good, holy, righteous, and spiritual law reveals sin in us, because of sin, it does not have the power to save us, to justify us, or to sanctify us. The good news is, is that this is what Paul has been trying to say. It's that God never intended for the law to do that. The law is not a failed plan of God. It was according, it was according to Galatians 3, 24 and 25, our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law had us bound in a hopeless state, a place where we could never be justified before God. While we were still positionally bound to the law, we were held there under the condemnation that it brings, unable to keep it and only able to bear fruit for death. Thankfully, because of that, we see, because of that, we see our desperate need for a Savior to justify us and then for the Spirit to sanctify us. Praise God that we are not under the law, but we are under grace. We are dead to sin and dead to the law. We belong to another. However... When we forget this new position that we have in Christ, when we try to do what's right while relying on our own strength, we can agree with Paul in verse 24 that we are wretched indeed. Now, I thought wretched meant terrible, but wretched actually means afflicted or worn out from struggling. That changes the whole, <laughs> the whole meaning it did for me. Have you experienced that in your life and in your struggle against sin? I know I, ha I have. When Mark and I married, we were both believers, and both of us were committed to having a marriage that honored God, but man, we were full of pride. And like most prideful people, we didn't even know it. Nor did we know the massive humbling that was coming our way. We thought we were going to have the best, the absolute best marriage ever. So we were both shocked when we found that living together as husband and wife was not quite as blissful as we had imagined. <laughs> we started arguing and fighting almost from the outset, and that lasted about two years, pretty much nonstop. And we fought over some of the most ridiculous things, too. I would, I, I'm actually embarrassed to even tell you any of them, but we, we had fights over dessert. I mean, it was dumb. Anyway, I felt this struggle daily between my flesh and my spirit. Like Paul, I delighted in the law of God. I had a desire to do what was right. I desired deeply to please God with my marriage, but I felt my flesh working against me daily. I would wake up each day determined not to fight with Mark. I knew specific actions I could actually take to, land, to not land us back in an argument, but I could not seem to do it. What I wanted to do, which was to love him, act unselfishly, have a gentle spirit, I did not do. What I didn't want to do, which was pout, respond selfishly, demand I was right, hold a grudge, return an offense, that was what I kept on doing. 
There were patterns and habits that were there that sprang up before I even realized what was happening. Anger, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, the list goes on and on. Wanting to do what was right did not seem to be enough. Hating my sin wasn't enough. I was reading countless books on marriage, and that did not seem to be enough to fix what was seemingly broken. We went to marriage conferences, hoping for things to change, but still just kept on fighting. We were so worn out from struggling and struggling to fix our marriage. It was only when we humbled ourselves and cried out to God in a true wretched state at the end of our rope, actually resigned to the fact that we'll just live together and maybe not even like each other. That was when God was able to do a work in both of us and begin to, to repair what we were destroying. We both had to come to the point where we truly saw Jesus as all we needed, that we didn't even need each other, we just needed him. He was our only rescue from our sin and wretchedness. And in hindsight, I can see what God was doing. He wanted to use our marriage to sanctify us. Marriage, not the law in this case, but marriage, stirred up the sin inside of me and brought it to the surface in my life. Sin that I didn't even know was there. And God continues to do that, not just through marriage, though. Sanctification is an ongoing process, and plenty of sin is left in me that the sanctifying act of parenting <laughs> is now bringing to the surface. <laughs> so, friends, the sooner... Excuse me. The sooner we get to the end of ourselves in our struggle with sin, the sooner God can begin to do his sanctifying work in us. When Paul uses the phrase, um, body of death, some commentators, um, particularly Spurgeon, thought that he was making a reference to ancient kings. I thought this was so interesting. Spurgeon says, It was a custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishments to tie a dead body to them placing the two back to back, and there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, putrid, corrupting, and this he must drag with him wherever he went. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, now this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him the new life. He has a living and undying principle which the Holy Spirit has put within him. But he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this dead body, this body of death, a thing as loathsome, as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. So who will rescue me from this body of death? That makes that cry even more powerful, doesn't it? Who will rescue me from this body of death, from this never-ending struggle? Is it the law? Is it myself? By no means. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What the law did to bring us to Christ, the Spirit now does to keep us in Christ. He is the only rescue. When we daily fall on the grace of God, we find what we need to walk in the new way of the Spirit. I am so thankful for my marriage to Mark. God continues to use him in my life to make me more like Jesus. But my marriage to Christ... That is the one I'm most thankful for. It is the, that is the marriage that is eternal, that nothing can change. I have been made dead to the law through the work of Christ. 
and have entered into an eternal relationship with him so that I can bear fruit for God. I've been wondering, this is my final thought, I've been wondering if I might be more effective in my struggle with sin if I prayed more about bearing fruit for God and less about not sinning. It's a little bit of just a paradigm shift. So what if we began each day with this prayer from verses 4 and 6? I love those two verses. I just want to take five out. (laughs) Focus on 4 and 6. So here would be the prayer. God, I thank you that through the body of Christ, I have died to the law and I'm serving in the new way of the Spirit. I belong to Jesus now so that I can bear fruit for you. What if our daily, moment-by-moment focus was to abide in Jesus, the vine, and ask of the Lord, will this bear fruit for you? I think when we begin to look at our thoughts and actions through that lens, it changes our perspective and allows us to walk in the new way of the Spirit. All of our thoughts and actions begin to be seen as an investment in our one eternal relationship. Our lives become an overflow of our love for Christ and Christ's love in us. So I pray and ask, Lord, when I criticize others and complain, will that bear fruit for you? When I focus on myself and what I want, will that bear fruit for you? When I fill my mind with worldly things, when I obsess over how I look or what possessions I have, When I squander my time on worldly pursuits, will that bear fruit for you? When I live with regret and unforgiveness, when I think I have the right to lose my cool with my kids or my spouse, when I let my heart be filled with fear over things I can't control, when I manipulate others to get what I want, when I'm self-indulgent or self-righteous, when I judge others for their struggle with sin, when I boast in my accomplishments to try to look better than others, will any of this bear fruit for you, Lord? But when I meditate on your word, will this bear fruit for you? When I spend time visiting my neighbor or serve my family, not expecting anything in return, when I encourage a friend who is struggling with parenting or come alongside someone who is struggling in their marriage, when I take food to a hurting family, when I repay evil with kindness, when I choose to be quiet instead of speak my mind, when I trust your sovereignty, Lord, and lay down my fears, when I sing songs of praise to you, when I meet together with other believers, when I thank you for where I see you already working in my life, when I step out in faith and do those things, God, that you've been nudging me to do, will those things bear fruit for you, God? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in our flesh, not under the law, but under grace, so that we can bear fruit for you, because we love you and we thank you for what you have done for us through Christ Jesus. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you, Shelly. I know Shelly's going to be embarrassed about or say something about crying in front of us. And I want to tell you, it's so endearing to me when, we can, when we're safe enough to cry together. So thank you for showing that to us. We appreciate it. <laughs> to cry, and it happens anyways.